Welcome back, kids, and thanks for listening as we continue our month-long celebration of Halloween Horror Month here on Kirby's Kids. And our comic book character of the month, The Great Old Ones, as we delve into Lovecraftian mythology here with none other than Doc. Doc, how are you? I'm awesome, Angus. How are you doing today? Doc, I am doing well, and uh, we, man, we read a very interesting selection. Neonomicon, and this came out from Alan Moore. Alan Moore is a Neonomicon. The first issue was published in July of 2010 from Avatar Press, and this independent comic was, the art was done by Jason Burroughs, and... Um, Juan Mar or Jean Mar was provided the color. Editor in chief William Christensen, and this is one of I believe Doc. There's what the the Providence uh, kind of anthology here works that that Moore did on Lovecraftian themes and Neonomicon. Here is a four issue, and basically was this a first salvo that was fired by a. Uh, by more on the uh, Lovecraftian mythos? No, this was actually the, a follow-up to uh, follow-up. A, okay. a, a story that he wrote um, originally in 1994. It was for a, um, a compilation book called Stor- Starry Wisdom. It was just a kind of a compilation, and it was a short story. It wasn't originally a comic, um, just kind of um, um, of like pr- doing praise to Lovecraft. All a bunch of different authors, I think like, um, some of your most common horror writers at the time were involved in this, and he had the story in here, and then he later went back to it, and he liked it, and he adapted it to a, uh, it was called The Courtyard, and he adapted that. I think it was just a one-issue, one-shot from the from that short story that came from that Starry Wisdom compilation book. Got it. Okay, great. Now, that, that's a, that provides, some, again, kids, some really good context here for this project now. So if that's the case, if that was happening all the way back in the 90s, this is a several decades long um, work in the works uh, mm-hmm. of of periodically here more coming back to Lovecraft and the Lovecraftian mythos and Doc, our comic book character of the month for Halloween Horror Month, are the great old ones. And with that, I'd like to turn it over to you for part two of your comics archaeology installment on the great old ones. That sounds awesome. Yeah. So remember we talked when we went over the last um, Lovecraft that we, that we talked about that uh, Lovecraft worlds, uh, we talked a little bit about how um, um, uh, Derleth, he kind of, he was uh, one of contemporaries of uh, Lovecraft. They became friends through correspondence and everything. And, uh, and Derleth basically continued Lovecraft's, um, his legacy by creating uh, the uh, Arkham publishers. And he, he kept, he kept Lovecraft alive basically after Lovecraft passed away. And um, um, the, one of the other things he did was he also kind of created his own mythos out of Lovecraft's works. That wasn't maybe exactly what Lovecraft, um, that direction he was going, but it's, it's what we got. And uh, in, in some cases, I think there's a good argument for and against um, that, you know, he did a great job with it, or he kind of took his own liberties and created his own mythos kind of thing. Um, 
But uh, you'll, you'll get some diehard Lovecraft that will not read anything but Lovecraft himself because he did. A lot of people don't like what Durleth did. Um, we like we briefly talked about how he basically created this good and evil aspect um, in the uh, Cthulhu uh, mythos and things like that. So, which definitely was not present in Lovecraft's work. Um, but yeah, today we wanted to go just a little bit more of that archaeology. So there's this um, the, this this distinction between the great old ones which are our character of the month, and then these outer gods. And uh, what are these? What's the difference between them? Do they interact? How did this come about? And basically, when I started diving into it, you talk about a rabbit hole. This was more of like a um, a crater than a hole that I went down because it, uh, it gets extremely confusing extremely quickly. So I, I wanted to try to summarize it in a, in a few in a few uh, paragraphs or not even paragraphs, just to, to try to make it a little bit more um, digestible. That it, and it gets confusing mainly because of that. You have Lovecraft, Durleth. You have things like the um, um, the role playing games that we talked about before, and all these different all these different avenues are giving their own interpretations and adding to that Cthulhu mythos or the the great old ones mythos. And um, and it's not everybody agrees with everybody else and uh including with with uh lovecraft wrote and the problem is that lovecraft never sat down and gave us like a hierarchy or his his actual like one story where he talks about the great old ones and who they are and uh, and things like that so we never get that from lovecraft so nothing's ever been codified and um and because of all the vagueness that Lovecraft would talk about who the great old ones are, it was uh, it leads to speculation and it leads to different interpretations. But I think that was done on purpose. I think Lovecraft kind of followed in the footsteps of somebody we'll touch on in a little bit um, about leaving leaving the horror in your books. Um, think about like the old you know the the original Jaws movie. Um, the original Jaws movie didn't show the shark almost at all, and it's because um, Spielberg wanted the the viewer the, who was watching the movie to fill in the blanks themselves because they, they, he thought that the shark that the, that the watcher will create in their mind is going to be more horrifying than anything we could put on screen. And that's kind of the same mental, uh, mentality Lovecraft took. He wants, he wants us, so when he names something, oh, there's, there's an unspeakable horror standing in front of me, all of a sudden, our minds start creating what this unspeakable horror could be, and he and he makes this on the level of a, of a psychological kind of horror because he doesn't always flesh out. And then he did, you know, an occasional he would describe some of the uh, the gods and everything. So there's like a lot of confusion with that. Um, but basically, um, Lovecraft never ever referred to the outer gods as such. He would either call them. Um, other gods or the gods of the outer hells and so basically what these outer gods are are think of them as like personifications of cosmic forces like eternity chaos um, um infinity and different things like that they're like these embodiments of these really big universal like almost like physics principles of the universe and things like that they're unstoppable they're incomprehensible we cannot even begin to think about them they live these outer gods live outside of our universe um, and they really don't have much of a uh, influence in it which is interesting because that can almost kind of be seen as a weakness that they have that they can't come in and out of our universe but again that was love vague this is pretty much the outer gods is pretty much what Durleth um, um, contributed to. He kind of made this separation. And um, these, um, uh, like I said, fundamental facets, um, they are, um, they can be, the outer gods can be closely related to this one creator god, which is um, Az Azathoth, 
And um, this is, uh, he describes Azathoth as uh, far beyond mortality. The uh, only fear Azathoth himself um, ending is he can end existence like in a blink and things like that. And he's supposed to have given birth to all the other outer gods. And uh, so, and, and then with the great, great old ones or great ancient ones are, or great old ones, I think we're calling them, is uh, so many different names for them. Um, these are, think of them more as like demigods. These are like, you know, definitely um, creatures of immense power, but they've been on earth. They are living gods that were on earth. Um, ancient members of their race, they have considerable personal power and they remain essentially immortal. Um, but there's also a lot of times where they are mortal as well. Um, as we can see, you know, they can be put to sleep. And that's, that's where, where Cthulhu is. He's under the ocean in the lost city of Riley. Um, and where, where there's a, uh, I, th I believe there's a flute involved with keeping him at sleep. And because he, he can't dream, he has to be in this coma like state. Because if he dreams, he could basically destroy the world as well. Um, but so that's, that's, the, that's one big distinction. If you think of it, the great old ones, they can reshape our world. That's how the, that's the power they have. The outer gods can actually reshape the entire universe. So you're looking at a big difference of of power and and uh, everything. And like I said, this is um, these this everything that I'm saying right now with the outer gods. This is all post Lovecraft's death. This is a mythos that was created um, from his works that Durlith kind of created um, to add, and he kind of made the outer gods like the real evil ones. And it was really odd in some of his writings, he kind of makes the, uh, the, uh, the ancient ones or the old ancient ones, he kind of makes them um, not good in a sense, but more of like the, the, uh, the ancient ones will protect human beings because they want to enslave us and they, they want us. So it's, they're, they're kind of protecting us for selfish reasons, but they still will go up against the outer gods when they can and, and things like that. So it, it gets very, very murky quickly, but that's your basic distinction between them think of the the principal forces of the universe personified are the outer gods and the eight old um the great old ones are just they have immense power yet limited um and um, um they have godlike powers but they're not gods themselves um they're like gods among men kind of like i said i said that demigod uh word before like you know that we can um we can encounter them um but um they usually and in Lovecraft's um, vision, they were completely indifferent to us. They didn't care. They wouldn't give us the time of day. Whereas um, with, with Durlith, he kind of created that they like to have influence over human beings. Um, they like to be able to um, manipulate us and do their bidding and try to create the way and uh, for re you know for the reemergence of the great ancient ones and things like that. So that's that's the main thing. And remember, all of this comes down to the main theme of Lovecraft's mythos, which is the the inability of humanity to grasp their utter irrelevance in the face of ancient and eldritch powers or dark powers. Um, so that's where the, that's where the the main distinction is, but that theme is there. And uh, in one way or another, human beings can't comprehend these gods that that uh, Lovecraft and, in consequence, Durleth and a lot of other writers wrote. And um, and when he had his publishing house, the Arkham um, Publishing House, uh, Durleth would you know he encouraged he loved writers um, from different areas to you know contribute to the whole uh, Lovecraft mythos. And if he liked the the book enough, then he would actually incorporate. Um, like I was, I think I said last week, I said the example, if Angus wrote a book on, um, on Lovecraft and Durlith really liked his creature, he would 
boom, all of a sudden, Angus's creature is now part of the Cthulhu mythos. And so, you know, you can see how piecemealing it like this could add to a lot of confusion. But that is the basic distinction between these two. Um, Lovecraft does use the term um, great old ones in two of his main books, uh, The Call of Cthulhu and also At the Mountains of Madness. So we know that he was, you know, what he was talking about with them. And he gives them these, like the kind of powers that I was referring to as more demigods and, uh, you know, um, creatures that used to live on earth and maybe still here sleeping under the earth, under the oceans and things like that. So um, that's where that main distinction comes from. Doc, thank you for providing further explanation on uh, the great old ones here. And I just wanted to add a couple things contextually. When we're looking at the cosmos in general, we're talking about cosmic horror here. I just got to rewatch a, a very cool uh, documentary that you can find over on Amazon Prime for Prime members, Lovecraft, Fear of the Unknown. And uh, amongst a star-studded panel of folks, including Neil Gaiman, Guillermo del Toro, John Carpenter, and others, they delved into the seminal moments in Lovecraft's life that expanded his thinking, specifically in his view of man, humans. And when he got very interested in astronomy, that's where they felt, okay, he really started honing in on man's insignificance in the cosmos, in the universe, how really small we were as he was looking out at, into the stars. So that was one thing which I wanted to, to bring to bear because I think it's important from a writer's perspective to understand where someone's coming from and how they then charted out their pantheon, their course here of all of these, you know, the, the, the great old ones and these outer gods and things. And when we're talking derelict, uh, you know, what was brought up also in the documentary was the mentioning of Lovecraft's admiration for, and he actually became a big fan of um, Lord Dunsany. And Dunsany had these fairy-like worlds and, and established gods over in them. And there was a great belief that that was the template that Lovecraft used to then build out his own world and have these godlike creatures in them. But it had the very, very dark overlay of Lovecraft there and this feeling of insignificance and, and the apathy of how these gods would act uh, around humans, because humans just didn't matter to them. They were way bigger than them. As where you saw in other pantheons, those humans were centric to those pantheons and how those pantheons then interacted with them. As where basically the Lovecraftian um, mythos, they just don't care. Plain and simple. Yeah. And, and that's cold. I mean, that is really, really cold and dark. So, he, yeah, he, oh. did, he did not have the best um, view of humanity, um, you know, uh, with his materialistic kind of determinism and uh, that, that, he, uh, that he believed in. And it, yeah, it wasn't a very positive outlook. He didn't look at it as negative and positive. He said, this is just the way it is. It's, you know, it might be cold, but it's just the way it is. And so it's, a, it's interesting um, that, he, you know, that he, uh, he got to that point with his writings. Yeah, it, it very much so is. And speaks to a, a new type of horror that would be introduced mm -hmm. here. I mean, because for, for centuries, you had 
through the spoken word and stories being passed down there there had always existed monsters you look at grimm's fairy tales they're very dark you look at ghost stories there was always this human element this definition of right and wrong good and evil lovecraft really instilled fear and fear of the unknown being the central prime mover and even if in lovecraft's works there, there isn't a, a single antagonist that you can point the finger on. The one thing that is consistent is that what Lovecraft was always bringing to the table, and I think in the documentary, Guillermo del Toro brings this out, is mood. Lovecraft was a master of mood, atmosphere, hopelessness, just, you know, ambivalence with respect to how these great old ones viewed the the world and the worlds that these humans occupied. So it's just really fascinating in how that was all redefined. I think also John Carpenter also commented on that particular yeah. aspect as well as Neil Gaiman. So I- indeed, the reason that Lovecraft has been able to endure now into another century is because truly this was groundbreaking. This was something completely different to the horror genre. Absolutely. And you know, I don't want to, uh, I'm not going to derail the conversation much, but I will say that two of my absolute favorite Lovecraft inspired films, which are not based on Lovecraft's works are both by John Carpenter, the thing and at the mouth of madness. Mm. Uh, Just, I mean, you couldn't get more Lovecraftian if he wrote it himself um, with uh, um, uh, at the mouth of madness. It, it's such it encompasses uh, Lovecraft so well that there's this book that if you read it, you go insane. And then we go to an actual area. Oh, it's just like I said, I don't want to derail too much, but just amazing, amazing movies. And uh, the thing too with the, with the ending, that hopelessness at the end of the thing is just. It just wrapped me in a warm blanket when I watched that movie. <laughs> yeah, and, and talk if I'm not mistaken, wasn't the thing a novel that Alan Dean Foster had done? Yes, yes. Okay, so so at least that work, at least Alan Dean Foster's uh, book. W- now, was that an adaptation of the movie, or was that an original work that then got turned into film? Um, if my chronology is correct, it was so the the, fr- the original movie was the thing from another world, and that's where mm-hmm. and John Carpenter took that one, and it was just the thing. And I do believe that that was um, that, that's the one that was adapted, and that was by Foster. Okay, got it, mm-hmm. got it. All right, so I- I- indeed, Carpenter, no stranger to all things Lovecraftian. 